0: Welcome to Farm to Fork, a program dedicated to exploring how food and drink are produced, delivered, and served throughout the Pioneer Valley. In every episode, we speak with some of the brightest lights in the valley's cul- culinary world from gleaners, gatherers, hunters, fishermen, farmers, and packagers, to brewers and restaurateurs, and everyone in between. My name is Jessica, my co host Sue Timberlake, and producer Lynn Savage join me in the studio. And today we'll be talking with Heather uh, Hansman, author of Down River, Into the Future of Water in the West. So Heather, it's good to have you on the show with us. Thanks for having me. So what led you to author a book about sources and uses of water in the West?
1: Um, well, there's sort of a couple compounding factors, and I'm actually from Massachusetts originally. I'm from the Cambridge area, and I've been a raft guide for a long time. That was my sort of summer job in college. I worked on the rivers in Maine. Um, And then I moved to Colorado after that, and I heard a lot of people talking about drought and overuse and kind of not having enough water. Mm -hmm. Um, But it all felt sort of, like, intangible. Like, I was kind of hearing these things, but I didn't know what they looked like on the ground. Um, And then I'm also a journalist. Mm -hmm. So I kind of wanted to write the book that I wanted to read. Right. And, you know, find, you know, all these questions I had about water weren't really being answered. And so it kind of seemed like a way for me to be able to dig into them mm-hmm. um, and figure out the answers to some of the questions I had about water.
0: Oh, great. So, so what were your goals uh, and, and purpose for the project?
1: Um, I wanted to look. So I, um, the gist of the book or like the narrative of it is that I paddled the length of the Green River, which starts in Wyoming and then goes through a little bit of Colorado and into Utah. Um, and along the way, I talked to kind of all the different people who use that river and the water from, you know, ag producers and ranchers to cities to endangered fish biologists um, to raft guides. And I kind of wanted to look at how all those different groups used water and thought about the river and then kind of where their conflict part points were and where they didn't get, didn't, didn't get along and then kind of how they were thinking about the future given climate change and given sort of more people wanting to share the same river. So mm-hmm. I was kind of trying to look at like the picture of how all the pieces fit together. Mm-hmm.
0: Also oh, you look like you had a question. <laughs> Hi there. <laughs> well,
2: I was just going to say it's a wonderful book and we all, you know, we all read it but we had to pass it around cuz, you know, oh, we're, you. <laughs> we're non-profit all the time, so
1: yeah, <laughs> one but, book
2: to share. But the way to, to lay out all those complexities, this is Sue by the way. It it's it's so amazing because I never have understood this and I have to say after I finished your book, I I felt like for at least a, a nanosecond I was like, "Oh, okay, this mm-hmm. is complicated and um water's going to be a real problem. So.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I mean, after working on it for four years, I think I'm kind of at the point where I'm like, oh, I think I get this. <laughs> you know, I think I get where all the pieces fit together.
0: So, Heather, what experience did you already have that assisted you with the river journey?
1: Yeah. So, like I was saying, I had been – I um, started running rivers in Maine, kind of on the – kind of back in the Penobscot, which are up there. And then I had guided in Colorado – in Utah a little bit. So I had been sort of a river person, like that had been, my mom always jokes with this book now that like all my rough guiding years finally paid off. <laughs> but, um, you know, I had been, somebody had spent quite a bit of time on the river um, and I, but this was sort of a different trip because I did most of it. I'd never done a trip that long before and I also did some pretty big chunks of it solo.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So I had sort of enough experience, I think, to like feel confident enough to do it, but not quite enough to like, actually know what i was doing mm-hmm.
0: and not feel so, yeah. scared during part of it
1: yeah <laughs> i was yeah, i was scared through some pretty big chunks of it
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: But. so heather you chose to focus on uh, the you mentioned the green river the most significant uh, tributary of the colorado river located in the west in the western united states um so what is the history of the green river uh, would you say in a nutshell
1: yeah the greens are really kind of history-wise and Sort of current use wise, I think it's really interesting. Um, like you said, it's the biggest tributary of the Colorado. Um, and I always think, sort of, a funny little history story is that it's actually the green and the main stem of the Colorado meet up in Canyonlands National Park. Um, mm-hmm. And those two stems are actually co equal, like they're about the same amount of flow at the point where they meet up. Um, and that stem of the Colorado, which comes down through Colorado, used to be called the Grand. There was the Grand and the Green, and then when they came together, they were called the Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the 20s, a guy who was one of the state reps for Colorado, who was, like, a pretty good marketing mind, um, mm-hmm. decided that he thought that the river that ran through Colorado should be called the Colorado. So oh, he petitioned Congress, yeah, and so we had the name changed. Mm-hmm. So the Green is sort of, like, just as important as the stem of the Colorado, but it kind of gets overlooked mm-hmm. because of this, like, tricky name change. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was... So this year is actually the 150th anniversary of John Wesley Powell's trip down the Green in Colorado, which was kind of the first, not you know, European ex- the exploration of that area. Um, and he started on the Green, so that was sort of like the first when they were kind of looking at opening the West and exploring there. That was kind of like the, the thread that took people into it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's got some kind of interesting historical significance, and you know, it's tied up in water use and exploration and sort of how we think about the West. I think.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And why, so why would you say is the uh, the Green River so important?
1: Yeah, so the, um, I mean, the Colorado and that whole river basin brings water to, I think the number's 40 million people in the western U.S. Oh, that's so important. You know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> just a couple of people. And it is, I mean, it's everything from water use, you know, like drinking water, to ag production, to energy use, so it's part of this really sort of, like, this is one of the things that I think is interesting about water, is that it's sort of this, like, unseen unspoken you turn the tap on and you don't think about it but water is like tied into everything that we do um and the green because it waters such a big area is a really big part of that people say that the colorado is the most overworked river in the country Mm -hmm. because it basically doesn't even make it to its delta because it's dammed up and it's used in cities and it's diverted a bunch of places so Mm -hmm. the green like i said is basically half of that
0: okay so So, so how many states uh like claim to water rights from the green river
1: um, this is... Do you want me to get really wonky on water policy? Because <laughs> I, I can get there. Our, our um, listeners
2: will enjoy it if you could do it. Yes. Just for a minute, okay, though.
1: I'll see, <laughs> I'll see what I can do and try and make it not too boring. Just kind of one of the goals of the book. But, um, so basically, the Green's part of the Colorado River Basin, and there are seven states that use water from the Colorado, and they kind of all are lumped in together, and that's Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada... In California, I think that's seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and the green only flows through three of those, but the way that the, so the Colorado River is broken up kind of water use-wise and water rights-wise through what's called the Colorado River Compact, which is was signed in 1922, and it basically broke up how much water each one of those seven states got from the river flow. Mm-hmm. So even though there's only three states that it runs through, basically like all those states think about that water as a whole. And mm-hmm. I, can, I can go more into that. That Colorado River Compact has kind of delineated how we think about water and how we use it in a lot of different ways. So, so
2: here's, that's a big... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, so here's a really dumb question. So could somebody today in another state somehow lay claim on water from there? Or is it just that those were historical? You know, is that, um, is that a possibility that another state could try and get some water from there? Or yeah, it's just the states that exist?
1: Yeah, that's not a dumb question at all, because this water rights and water law stuff is super, super complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now, only those states within the river basin can legally lay claim to it. But there's some, like, there's some cases where, you know, in Colorado, the Colorado River runs toward the Pacific. But in some places, like Denver pumps water over the Continental Divide and diverts it into a different river basin. And then it flows out kind of into the Arkansas River Basin and towards the east, Mm-hmm. So states that aren't in the basin can't lay claim to those water rights, but in a lot of cases they are using it or they're getting it in different ways.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Wow. So Heather, you mentioned the Colorado River Compact. Um, I was curious, how was that determined?
1: What that determined or when?
0: Well, when and how.
1: Oh, when, yeah. Um, it was, yeah, it was. there's a lot there. It was um, signed in 1922 and basically mm-hmm. – um, Why that happened is because um, I'll back up a little bit and talk about water rights and how they're delineated. And Mm -hmm. um, in the East Coast, most people get water through riparian water rights, which basically means that, you know, it's a property right. If there's water flowing through your property, you have rights to it. Mm -hmm. Did you say Um, riparian?
2: Riparian, Riparian. yep, exactly. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Um, But out West, they use what's called prior appropriation, which basically means that if you're the first person to put that water to use, then um, you have the first rights to that and everyone who comes in after you is junior and they don't get any of their water rights till after you get yours, which is sort of a way to divvy up water in places where there's less water and there are fewer streams and it's harder to get access. Um, and so in the, basically in the late teens and early 20s, the states upstream where it got nervous that California was kind of claiming all those water rights mm-hmm. and you know, was going to sap up everything before they got to develop anything. So the states all got together um, and they basically divvied up how much water they broke the, the river up into an upper and a lower basin. So the upper basin is Utah, Colorado, um, New Mexico and a slice of Arizona. And then the lower is California, Nevada and the rest of Arizona. Mm-hmm. And they each got 7.5 million acre feet of water to develop. Um, just as a way to kind of like delineate who got what. And then eventually there's a treaty with Mexico in the forties that gave Mexico 1.5 million acre feet, um, mm-hmm. And that math is actually kind of important because then it delineates, you know, how much water everybody's getting along the way. But that, that's sort of like the baseline for water and who's getting what and where they can get it from. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a lot of water. Yeah. I mean, it does. Well, the tricky part um, is that so that math adds up to, what is it? Like about 16 million acre feet, and um, the late teens and 20s were one of the wettest periods in mm. history.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and they thought that they had about 18 million acre feet running through the basin, and it turns out that it's closer to 15 Uh-oh. Uh-oh. over a longer historical period. Yeah. So this is sort of the big. I don't want to give <laughs> away the a negative there. For the there. Whole boat. <laughs> yeah, but that's sort of like the heart of all these problems over water use in the West is that we're, you know, trying to divvy up more than actually exists.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And
1: so that kind of sets up this, water managers call it structural deficit, but it's basically this idea that we're trying to subtract from a number that's already negative. Oh,
0: boy. So, so you mentioned yeah. um, first person, but did that, so was that first white person, first Native person?
1: Yeah, Powell the, was kind of the first The first white, he and his crew. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually a totally... There's a really good Wallace Stegner book about it. There's another book that's come out recently about the Powell expedition, mm-hmm. but it's sort of he was this you know Civil War general who had lost an arm, who was a total tough guy, um, and he and I think there was nine men in his crew took three wooden boats down the river, um, in, in I should be a hundred years, it was it 1869, mm-hmm. um, and they were the first. There had been some fur trappers, you know, kind of white European guys who had and into parts of it. There's a guy named William Ashley, who was, a, I think, a French fur trapper who had seen parts of the green. Mm-hmm. But they were really the first people to, you know, these kind of, like, deep, scary canyons far away from, you know, the only water source was this big raging river or some of the last places that, you know, white people developed in the western U.S. Mm-hmm. So they were kind of the first white guys to go down there. Mm-hmm. And they lost a boat in one of the first big rapids. Two guys, um gave up and hiked out and they were ultimately killed. Like it was kind of this great, you know, frontier story. <laughs> oh, well. so. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: so, yeah, you're, so you're telling the story of when, is that when the green river was geologically surveyed? Yep, exactly. And then, and then Dem- why, Dem- why Powell. was Powell taking that on?
1: Um, he had been, he ended up being the, um, that's actually a great question. I don't know exactly why he was the one who wanted to do it, but he ended up being the first head of the USGS, of the mm-hmm. US Geological Survey. Um, so I think he was sort of like somebody who was fascinated with these places, and he was one of the only people who volunteered to do it. Mm-hmm. I think that he was yeah. kind of like one of these last last explored places. And I think it was at that point, you know, they had some reports from sudden settlements out there, but I think a lot of it was really, really unknown. Mm-hmm. And like they had no idea what the rapids were going to be like. They didn't really know how far they would be between stops where they could get access and get food. Mm-hmm. Sort of like you. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I had a little more, little more insight into that, and <laughs> knew where I could pick up, pick up mm-hmm. snacks. I got cell phone service through enough. of it.
2: <laughs> but I, I, read that book. There were there are a few stories where you went by where you were supposed to stop, and yeah,
1: you know. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So, so Heather, what were the results? Would you say of the Powell expedition?
1: Um, there was a couple, I mean, he sort of surveyed it for homesteading. It was right around when the Homestead Act was too. So he Mm -hmm. kind of opened up where people, um, could be. And Powell was actually a really interesting guy in terms of water use. He kind of had these theories about how water should be used. He kind of thought that they should only be, rivers should only be used in their own basin, that people shouldn't kind of, he thought that agriculture would be really hard kind of out there because it was so dry. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the time, you know, manifest destiny was kind of like the the name of the game, and people really were excited about westward exploration. So people didn't really take his words to heart,
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, and we're kind of finding now that if we had a lot of his sort of predictions and how he thought people should use water,
3: mm-hmm.
1: is kind of still ringing true. And everyone's like, "Oh man, we should have we should maybe thought about this 149 yeah. years ago."
0: <laughs> should have listened to Powell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Heather, you know, along your journey down the Green River. Um, I read in the book you met with various experts to learn about the rules and laws that govern water rights, and those include local and federal rights. Uh, You mentioned riparian rights and sovereign nations, uh, Native American rights. And to me, it all seemed very complex and mysterious. Uh, When I started reading the book, and even by the middle, it was still a bit muddy. How were you able to piece it all together um, into a coherent whole?
1: Yeah, that's. I mean, it is it is muddy. It's really, it's really, really complicated. And there, I guess, um, the best way to think about it maybe is that you have, you have federally, what's called federally reserved water rights, which are basically, um, national parks have rights to those. And those tribal water rights that you mentioned, which are kind of another complicated thing are administered by the federal government. Mm -hmm. Um, but those are kind of rare and, You know, it's hard to get a federally reserved water right, and for the most part, um, water rights are governed by the state government. And because of that Colorado River Compact in 1922, which breaks up how much much each state gets, Mm -hmm. then each state can kind of work within that to divvy up water rights. Mm -hmm. So, say, if you were a rancher in Wyoming, you would go to um, the—in Wyoming, it's the state engineer's office, and you would apply for a water right, and then that would put you in that line of historic use.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah, so it is this kind of overarching federal system, and then you have to work with the states. Um, and then each state does it a little bit differently.
0: Hmm. Make, so, yeah, get, like, that yeah. Much, much more interesting. That's what yeah, really- yeah, so... I was oh, going to say that's what really
2: clarified it for me was that this overlapping jurisdictions and mm-hmm. sort of who prevails really finally is what brought it home to me how yeah, why you would go to some place for some things and other places for others, and you know just this knowing what that 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 regulatory schema is is key to to even accessing the system at all, it seems. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. it's really, And I went at one point in the book to try and figure out even for myself how to really understand that. I went to the Utah State Water Office mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, luckily met a really thoughtful, kind, patient water engineer. And he sort of sat me through. I was like, you know, if I wanted to, if I wanted to water right, what would I have to do? And he kind of sat me down and stepped me through all the steps and what mm-hmm. would happen if I applied now and where that would put me in the historic list. Um, and it's really, you know, you get different amounts. You can, you can try to get different amounts of water for different kinds of activities. Like there's, you know, a certain amount you can get if you want a municipal use. Mm-hmm. Um, but it all kind of comes down to that historic. This is why the system is sort of hard to change because all of it's based on that historic first-in-time, first-in-right, you know, list, basically.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So those oldest water rights always prevail.
2: And yet you would think that would mean Native Americans, but it doesn't. So we should well, talk about that yeah. later, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That's
1: a tricky one. We can get back to because that one's that's sort of one of the things that I still think is the most interesting and unresolved. But yeah, we can we can circle back.
0: <laughs> You're listening to Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP one hundred three point three FM in Northampton, and we're talking with Heather Hansman, author of Downriver: Into the Future of Water in the West. Um, so you, it seems like you just gave us sort of a brief description of how water rights uh, work in the West Heather, do you want to add anything to that? I
1: think' that, that I don't want to get it too bogged down in the weeds. like okay. you guys think there's stuff that would be interesting or do you think that's enough to give um, people a sense of yeah i
0: think I think that was pretty that was pretty clear in a, in its simplest form yeah we we will yeah. end up circling back, I know
1: <laughs> yeah, and that tribal stuff is for sure interesting yeah. and complicated and mm-hmm. there's a lot there right right
0: so um so heather, I know there are various groups um you know acting in the arena of water, and they each have their own motivations and goals. What was your strategy for organizing your trip and uh, diving, I mean, dividing up the different groups that you were connecting with?
1: Yeah, I had, um, that was sort of, the way the different groups kind of interacted was my biggest framework for thinking about it, and I had had, you know, in my initial reporting before I even really came up with the idea of the trip, I had talked to some water managers and some people who think about water a lot about kind of who was fighting about water and where the groups were. And um the one who's most or the one I kind of think about a lot is Anne Castle, who used to be the deputy secretary of the interior for water and the environment. And I kind of had some conversations with her about what the different you know, kind of who was pulling on water resources. And, you know, we came up with agriculture, which is sort of tends to be the most historic use and has some of those oldest water rights. And then cities and urban use because that's sort of especially as people move to cities like, you know, Salt Lake, which is growing really quickly, or Denver or L.A., Um, that use is changing. And then we looked at energy, or I looked at energy, um, and that sort of everything from hydropower, which is a lot of those rivers are dammed for, you know, power creation and for storage. And then there's a lot of oil and gas development um, in the area. And then I sort of looked at environmental uses and, water flows for habitat and for there's a bunch of endangered mm-hmm. fish in that river, so that population. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I looked at uh, recreation and sort of like using the river for the sake of the river. And then there's sort of, an, you know, like a sprinkling of other uses that don't get as big of a piece of the pie, but those were sort of like the big picture, you know, broad scale groups.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the oil and gas surprised me, which um, the reserves that are allegedly under there and what pressure that will make. That was—I didn't realize that about that area.
1: Yeah, so. I hadn't really until I spent time there and kind of got in there. But the um, Green River Formation, which is under—it's kind of southern Wyoming, northeastern Utah, vernal Utah is kind of the, big, the biggest town in that zone, um, has this huge oil shale deposit— um, oh, Vernal, and the, Vernal, oh
2: sorry. Um, Vernal, Utah, the town. I was thinking Vernal what?
1: <laughs> Vernal, oh, the, yeah, Vernal, The town Utah. of Vernal. Got it. Thank yes, you. Exactly. I'm, I'm yeah.
2: the, I asked the dumb questions on the show just no, so you know. No, no. <laughs>
1: There's, like, literally no dumb questions around this It's all <laughs> super confusing. Um, but, yeah, I hadn't really been in sort of like an oil and gas boom town before. Um, and when I was there, prices were pretty low, so there weren't a ton of new wells being drilled. But that sort of become the biggest thing economy in that area and then it sort of is this up in the air variable water use mm-hmm. because it can, you know really depends on the well how much water they need and they can get water from all these sometimes they'll try and get temporary water rights from um you know, from ag sources, I heard about some oil and gas companies filling up water from like city fire hydrants and trucking it out to drill. Oh, that's interesting. The city let yeah. them do that. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know if that's a little sketchier against the rules. Um, it was the mm-hmm. guy, then, like the guy in California
2: that that watered his almond trees from the municipal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah so it is. Funnest I mean, water actor. is this, yeah. this thing that is you know like kind of life or death in a lot of places, and people get a little crazy about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then with the oil and gas stuff, a lot of times it's not even as much the quantity of the water, but it's the quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of these places are either putting their fracking fluid in the water that's contaminated back down into, the you know, drill holes, into the rock layers, or they're creating drainage ponds. Mm-hmm. Um, and going in, I had kind of thought that oil would be the problem, that, you know, if you had an oil spill or a pipe burst, that would be really bad. And that's like decently bad, but the worst thing is when the salts and the solvents and sediments that they put in the fracking fluid get into the river because it's really, that's dissolves in water, mm-hmm. so it's really hard to get it out once it's in there. Mm-hmm. So short of this, like, if there are spills, they can be really, really devastating to that environment.
2: So who knew that salt was in fracking fluid? I
1: Yeah, it's funky. <laughs> <laughs> wow.
2: I would think yeah. that would be illegal, but that's just me. But It's, it's salt-
1: interesting. It's all regulated state by state. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of places the rules and you one of them where like the rules are pretty loose about what you have to report and what you can I don't know a ton. My knowledge mm. of this is not as detailed, but
2: Yeah. But salt. You can put salt yeah. I didn't think you could do that to anybody's property, but oh well. Yeah.
1: Mm. Yeah, and water is this interesting thing where it's you know, if you have a water right, it becomes your property, but then it also it goes back into the stream and it's this collective
3: mm-hmm.
1: resource like that's kinda of one of the things that so tricky to wrap your head around. I think Yeah. is that it's individual and it's also collective. Like you know, there's only there's only so much water, and mm-hmm. it all cycles back around.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So Heather, how would you define uh, the doctrine of prior appropriations, uh, and what historical event led to it being adopted?
1: Yeah, so that's that kind of idea of um, the right the water rights and sort of first in time, first in right, mm-hmm. where if you get it, when you have, if you, like, say you get a first water right and I get the second one, mm-hmm. you will always get all of your water before I get any of mine.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and history is kind of funky, but it, um, it comes from mining days. And, you know, as people started mining for gold and things like that, mm-hmm. in the, I think in California especially, um if somebody were to come in upstream of you and divert the water, then it would totally disrupt your mining claim. Mm-hmm. So the miners kind of set up that law so that they, nobody could come in upstream of somebody else and totally jack their claim.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And then that's kind of become, and it works pretty well as long as there's enough water to go around. But it starts right. to get scary when, you know, like, like I said, we have that kind of imbalance of how much water is actually in the system. Mm-hmm. So when there isn't enough to go around, then it the people who have the junior water rights start to get kind of... And start to get scary for them because they can potentially not get their water mm-hmm.
3: at all at
0: all yeah at
1: all
3: yeah
0: yeah, yeah. so that would discourage um, water hoarding as well
1: well it's it, part of that the doctrine too is that if you don't to try and keep water moving through the system mm-hmm. um, if you don't use all of your water you can potentially lose it right
3: um, oh, you know, dear. Which,
1: yep. yeah which kind of in theory creates this idea of everything's being used efficiently but that means that nobody wants to use any less than their allotted share because they're scared that they're going to use it so right. it kind so of creates a of yeah there's no incentive to conserve mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and that's sort of one of these places that where there's change in movement now and that a lot of people are trying to figure out ways to build in flexibility to that and build in you know, ways that people might not use all their water and mm-hmm. lease it or trade it or something like that um, but legally there's no framework for that and there's no incentive to do so
0: Oh, so you're saying even still today there are no conservation incentives built in? Nope. Oh, wow. Well.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Not if you want to hold on to your rights, right? Yeah, yeah. If yeah. you're moving on and it doesn't matter. But then your property wouldn't be so valuable if you didn't, yeah. right?
1: Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, exactly. And so it is this sort of tricky balance where people are trying to figure out ways to you know, incentivize conservation that don't feel scary and don't feel do or die.
3: Because
0: mm-hmm.
1: nobody wants to kind of like give up some of their water even in a wet year. If that means they're potentially not gonna get it in a dry year.
0: Right. So Heather, what would in your opinion, what would the West be like today if water was never diverted from rivers or dammed in the past?
1: Oh yeah, that's a that's such a tricky question. It's like someone it's like kind of crazy to envision that because so many of the river even rivers that we think of as being you know, like the Grand Canyon or rivers that we think of as being wild are dammed and diverted.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I think there would be a lot fewer people Mm -hmm. out there. I think it would be really. I think a lot of cities wouldn't have water. Mm -hmm. You know, you think about big Western cities like uh, Las Vegas or uh, Denver or something like that, and a lot of those aren't on huge water sources.
3: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Like a lot of them get their water piped in. So yeah, it's kind of that's kind of that's a good question. It's kind of crazy to think about
0: how different it might look. So very desert like. um, Yeah. Very hard to develop, and you're saying.
1: Yeah, and a lot of the, um, especially the kind of, you know, I talked to ranchers at the beginning of the book, and a lot of the kind of oldest historic ranches are located on, like, the forks of steep streams or places where two, you know, two little rivers come together. Like, you can tell that they were really intentional Mm -hmm. about making sure that they settled somewhere, that they had a water source.
3: Right.
0: We need to uh, take a station break, but please stay with us because when we return, we'll continue our discussion with Heather Hansman, author of Down River, Into the Future of Water in the West.
4: Thank you, Tom and Janine Giles of Hadley Garden Center for your support of Valley Free Radio. Since 1963, together with their staff, providing a wide variety of plants, products, and customer service. Conveniently located on Route 9 in Hadley, they would love to have you visit their store. Opened year-round, seven days per week, with lush plants to choose from. From 413-584-1423, supporting free speech and the Pioneer Valley. Thank you, River Valley Co-op, for your support of Valley Free Radio. River Valley Co-op specializes in fresh, local, and organically grown foods, fresh produce, meat and seafood, cheese and dairy, bread and baked goods, and an in-house deli, along with a wide selection of bulk foods and a large selection of natural and organic grocery items. Owned by its customers, although everyone is welcome, co-op ownership is not required. Open daily, 8 to 10, 330 North King Street, Northampton, phone 413-584-2665, rivervalleymarket.com. Thank you, River Valley Co-op, for your support of free speech in the Pioneer Valley.
0: My name is Jessica. My co-host, Sue Timberlake, and producer Lynn Savage join me in the studio. We've been talking with Heather Hansman, author of Down River, Into the Future of Water in the West. Um, So, Heather, another, um, I noticed in the book, another glitch mentioned uh, the current water rate system. Um, when it was developed, uh, it was believed, based on the science of the time, that harnessing water would make the desert livable; um, that people could reclaim it from wilderness. So, what projects came about as a result of this uh, erroneous thinking?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the a lot of the kind of growth and development in general across the West was based on this idea that if we could get water, places, and if we could you know, pipe it into certain areas, we would be able to live there. And I think in a lot of ways, it, it didn't do that. Like, you know, we, there are places where we can live in the desert, but um, one of the ones that I think is really interesting in terms of sort of like wrong thinking is the Fontenelle Dam and Reservoir, which is one of the, there's two big dams on the green. There's Fontanelle and then there's Flaming Gorge, which is a little downstream of that. Mm-hmm. And Fontenelle was built based on this idea that if they had a reservoir, they could basically start agriculture there and grow food crops. Um, and so they built this huge reservoir. I can't remember off the top of my head how much money they sunk into it, but it was a big Army Corps of Engineers project. And then, you know, they started filling it up and they started these test farms and they couldn't grow anything. Oh, well. The soil wasn't good, mm-hmm. it was too dry, it was too cold. Mm-hmm. Um, so they kind of built this whole big water diversion project on this sort of like false idea of agriculture mm-hmm. um, and Fontenelle's still there, it's used for water storage to kind of get water, two big cities, or two of the biggest cities in Wyoming, mm-hmm. Rock Springs and Green River, which are not that big, but it's Wyoming, are kind of just downstream of that so that becomes sort of like the city, the municipal water supply for mm-hmm. so those guys
3: To have
2: this huge reservoir and-
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. and it And really, it's super weird looking because it's really, you come in, I drove, um, before I put on the river, I kind of drove the path of it, and you come in from the north from these like little kind of nowhere, you know, oil and gas towns, and all of a sudden, there's this huge lake that just comes out of nowhere in the desert. So it's this very, you know, incongruous (laughs) landscape. Mm
3: -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. So Heather, what is uh, shovel irrigation or flood irrigation? What does that mean?
1: Yeah, so flood irrigation is how a lot of these people, especially in kind of the upper reaches of the river, the drier, you know, kind of, you know, scrubby forest places irrigate their fields. Um, And it's basically exactly what it sounds like, where they, um, using canals or channels that bring water in from the sides, they basically flood, you know, a little bit of water across the whole field to Mm -hmm. sort of soak it through and then grass grows there. Um, and shell Irrigation is what this guy, um, Randy Bolgiano, who is one of the first ranchers that I went to see, calls what he does. And he basically, he's got a canal running through the side of his field, and he basically just, you know, it's all dirt, and he basically just kind of chops up part of it to create more little canals. Then it runs over the field, and it's sort of this, like, really low-tech You know, no tools. It's just him out there with a little pitchfork and a hoe Mm -hmm. kind of moving things around. Just
2: opens up the canal and it just comes.
1: Yeah, basically, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it is, you know, I had, I'm somebody who grew up in a city. You know, my experience with the river had been in a boat for the most part. And it was really interesting to see kind of all these different techniques. You know, I was kind of like, well, why do you do it like that? He was like, because this is what we have. You know, we just have to figure out. How to do it, mm-hmm. and these canals are super. They're all gravity fed. It's this really sort of complicated network, but it's all sort of done by hand.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Sounds pretty efficient.
1: Yeah, yeah. He's, so, he's a smart guy. He's thinking about a lot. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: didn't the Maya? They think some of the Maya did that, and that's how they survived and supported all those
1: populations. Yeah, population. yeah. You go back. I mean, it's like you go back to ancient, you know, Greece and Rome and stuff like that, and they have these really complicated sort of like Hand-dug agriculture, you know, irrigation systems.
2: You move the stone, and then you move it back, and it closes it
1: yeah, off. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Machu Picchu has that. You know, it's yeah. like we didn't, we didn't make this up in Wyoming.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's not new. So, Heather, where do where would you say farmers uh, generally fall as far as water rights uh, and the best use of water?
1: In terms of, like, time scale in the water rights, or they often have. In a lot of places, those historic ranches have the oldest. Um, the most senior water rights,
3: mm-hmm.
1: or usually they're, in a lot of places they're kind of second senior to the tribes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of best use of the water, it's sort right. of, I think that's a tricky question. A loaded, but I think loaded question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the best use. Um, but I think a lot of, like this guy Randy, for example, you know, who runs a cattle ranch, and he flood irrigates, I talked to him a lot about kind of what his ideas of conservation were and how he thought about that. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was like, you know, when I flood irrigate my field, um, it's what they call a non-consumptive water use. So it it absorbs about, I think, something like 18% of the water, and then the rest of it percolates down into the water table and goes downstream. And he's like, you know, it, it creates habitat for animals. So his idea of the best use is flood irrigating. But if you talk to somebody downstream that seems like a really inefficient use of water and they would rather you know like you can drip irrigate some Mm -hmm. crops and use a lot less water or you could you know pipe some of that to cities so Mm -hmm. it is this tricky sort of best use is really different depending on what lens you're looking through Mm -hmm. did you say the,
2: the farmers the small farms at the forks of the river were really what the first european sort of uses they were there first in the in the gold rush. Then the gold rush, but so that's why you're saying they're sort of first in line because they they did it right on the edge of the river.
1: They yeah, bought. and they were the first ones to to get a water right. You have to put it to what's called beneficial use. Um, so they were kind of the first ones to put that water to use that the government deemed good to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well,
2: feeding people is pretty good idea, but
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's I mean that's the thing, right? Like we do, people do need to eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah but is there a better, you know, is it more efficient to grow, you know, lettuce down in Yuma, Arizona, than it is to grow grass for cows in Wyoming when it's all kind of, I mean, a little bit of an oversimplification, but,
3: Mm -hmm. you know, when it's kind of coming
1: out of the same river. Yeah. And when, you know, that's people's jobs in rural areas, like, how do you kind of spreading it out in an equitable way is really tricky.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Heather, I have to say that when I read about his ranch and, you know that they can only grow grass for cattle, and, and my thought was why? So why did the the farm family, which has been there for many generations, why did they originally settle there when you know they could have settled somewhere else? And um, yeah, I'm just kind of yeah. baffled.
1: Yeah, I think it was a sort of like American exploration. This is a lot of these people came out right you know around the time of the Homestead Act, where you you could get I want to say it was like 120. I'm going to remember the numbers wrong now, but you could get yeah, you know X right. amount of acres. And if you could settle it and grow it, you could have it for free. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, That's was really, really appealing to a lot of the people who had come over.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could, lay, you could lay down roots.
1: Yeah, if yeah. if had to work yep. Yeah. And a lot of these places did. Um, one of the other ranchers I talked to, his family had been there really early, and they basically ended up parsing together a bunch of different homesteads.
3: Mm-hmm. And that
1: was kind of how it was really hard to kind of grow a sustainable food crop. On right. um, one of those homesteads, but if you can get a few together and grow some cows, then you could kind of make it work.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So a lot of these people were really, you know, really kind of scrapped it out.
0: Yeah, like a co-op. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, oh, she lost my thought. Um, yeah. uh, so you visited uh, Pat O'Toole, the president of the Family Farm Alliance, who talks about aligning food production and conservation. So how would you describe his farm and his methods?
1: Yeah, he's a, really, he's a really interesting guy, and he, he's somebody who had been on President Clinton's kind of agriculture committee, and he has this beautiful ranch. It's up in the headwaters of the Little Snake, which is one of the tributaries of the green. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, it's kind of right on the Wyoming-Colorado border, and he has the advantage of being at the very top of the water system. So he has old water rights, and then he also doesn't have anyone upstream from him diverting. Mm-hmm. But he's built in a lot of these sort of—he's um, worked with, I think, the—I want to say it's the Nature Conservancy and a couple other um, conservation groups to build in sort of fish habitat structures into his canals and into the stream. So mm-hmm. it's kind of stopping up the water and slowing it down, and then it diverts out to his fields. So he's kind of overlaying this idea of habitats building and, like, you know, maintaining the ecosystem in a way that benefits everybody on top of his agriculture practice.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And it's really, it's really, you know, his ranch is totally beautiful. There's fly fishermen there. Everything's really green in this place where a lot of places are sort of, like, brown and scrubby. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, I think it's a really good idea, but I think he also has some sort of, like, you know topographical logistical things working in his favor there's a little advantage yeah yeah so it's like it's a great idea but like a lot of these things kind of easier said than done
0: right right Uh, oh actually so getting back to you mentioned the 120 acres um i Mm -hmm. i thought wasn't it your book where i was reading that it was determined that that was wasn't enough land for i mean none of these conditions to for a family to live sustainably or sustain yeah that's why a lot of 120 acres
1: yeah, a lot of the people who stuck around kind of did cobble together a couple homesteads. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, got, you know, like everyone in the family kind of got their parcel and then they pulled it together. And mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, I mean, it's really hard to grow food out there.
2: Marry off a few a few sons and daughters to get, yeah.
1: To <laughs> yeah, to together. kind of claim theirs, yeah.
0: So Heather, who would you say are the antagonists in, in this drama, this water drama?
1: Um, oh, that's another good question. I think that the hard part is that there aren't, Depending on how you look at it, everybody's the antagonist and no one's the antagonist. Mm
2: -hmm. Nobody's a bad guy. They just have interests. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, It's that everyone, for the most part, everyone is trying to do their idea of good. It's just that there, like, physically isn't enough to go around. Mm -hmm. So these fights start. I think, if anything, the sort of, like, antagonists or the people that I saw who weren't kind of trying to work cooperatively or weren't at least, you know, trying to do good were mm-hmm. a lot of those kind of oil and gas companies, which mm-hmm. in a lot of places will come in and drill and then do a shoddy job of cleanups. I talked to some people who worked for the BLM and who had worked for the BLM and land management agencies about how many sort of wrecked wells they had seen and how many, like, uncapped drilling areas. So mm-hmm. those, like, mm-hmm. in the kind of, like, good guy, bad guys, that's sort of the only group in all this that seemed like... Took
2: the money you know, and
1: ran? Yeah. yeah, yeah, which I think is it's an opportunistic... Industry,
3: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. but yeah, that was sort of like you know I came in kind of being like I'm gonna figure out where the fights are and who the good guys and bad guys are, mm-hmm. but like for the most part, everybody's a good guy or yeah. at least like trying to be a good guy through whatever lens they're looking through.
2: Mm-hmm. And you said BLM bureau is that Bureau of Land Management? Is that Bureau of Land saying? Management? Yes, yeah. and that's which the is government.
1: Yep, that's federal, and they manage a lot of. So basically, after the Homestead Act. um, I'm going to compress a lot of history here, but... um, You know
2: you have to because your book was long and complicated. Long
1: and (laughs) tedious, yeah. But um, basically the land that hadn't been homesteaded was turned back over to the government, and that became the BLM that managed all that land. So they're actually, I think they're the biggest federal land manager. And a lot of, I know when you hear about often oil and gas leases and things being drilled, often that's on BLM land. So it's uh, the biggest federal land manager. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. So, Heather, in your book, uh, in this book, Down River, you mention that uh, a lot of the fights that you saw between urban and rural rural places stem from a lack of understanding of a place that one has never seen and that it's hard to internalize priorities until you've felt them. So how might the rural and urban populations uh, be made to understand?
1: Yeah, I think that that, I mean, that's sort of the heart of a lot of this, I think, is that it's hard to look through somebody else's eyes if you have no idea what their priorities are. Mm -hmm. And I think sort of the the places that I saw the most kind of like change or collaboration or that kind of thing were places where, you know, you could get people who are coming from really different directions into the same room and have them kind of talk about why they thought about things the way that they did. Mm -hmm. I kind of got to, at one point I was in, in Vernal, Utah, in at Oil and Gas Town, and um, there was a, meeting about dam releases and kind of why the Bureau of Reclamation, which runs the dams, had been releasing more water than they usually do, and -hmm. they wanted to explain it. And um, a lot of these ranchers came in, and they were really, really angry Mm -hmm. at the government because, you know, their farms had been flooding, and they weren't used to it, Um, and they were just kind of like, you guys aren't even thinking about us, the government's out to screw us over. And when everyone kind of got in this room and the people who operate the dams kind of explained why they had been doing it to make sure that, the, you know, like things didn't flood upstream and they didn't Mm -hmm. wreck the dam. They kind of, you know, everyone's kind of like, oh, okay, I see what you're talking about here. That actually makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of that is sort of like human to human contact and getting to see the other side, which is really, which is really, really hard to do on a large scale. Mm
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, that's seven states worth, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And even like a lot of, there's been, um in the past couple of weeks, the uh, seven states in the basin signed what's called the drought contingency plan,
3: mm-hmm. which um, oh.
1: basically, yeah, yeah, it's actually pretty recent news, and it's the first time they've all agreed to take less than their allocated share, oh, well. which is a big deal, you know, given that structural imbalance. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's taken a really, really long time for them to even sit in the same room and agree to something like that. Mm-hmm. And even people that I've talked to about it have said, you know, like it's a really important first step because it's addressing this idea of compromise, but mm-hmm. it's not going to go far enough. But even to get people to like, you know, say like, okay, let's talk through this. It was really, really hard.
0: Mm-hmm. Big
1: mm-hmm.
0: step. Yeah. Uh, so Heather, uh, how, so we, earlier we, we alluded to native Americans and maybe not getting a fair shake, but how have they been treated uh, through this process of divvying up the water?
1: Yeah, this is sort of, this is what I want my next book to be about, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I think this is sort of the biggest um, unresolved kind of water issue, which is that um, in, along the rivers and, you know, kind of with water in general, um, tribes were basically left out of water, you know, water conversations and breaking things up, um, and eventually, I'm going to blank on the date of this, but there's um, something called the Winter's Doctrine, which eventually decided that tribes should be given water rights. You know, they've been put on reservations and they should be given water rights that dated to the um, to their the date that their reservation was started.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so in a lot of those places, they have the oldest water rights in the basin. And so they kind of jumped the line. They're the only group that's allowed to, in that sort of first-in-time, first-in-right, they can jump the line. And they also don't have to, um, because they're federally reserved water rights and not state water rights, they don't have to prove that they're putting them into beneficial
2: use. Oh, they don't have to use it or lose it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So they're the only group oh, that doesn't have to do that. Yeah. But so that's kind of you know, good in theory, but in a lot of these places, um, like on the reservation, on the green, the UN new reservation,
3: mm-hmm. they've been
1: promised these water rights. They had never settled up for exactly how much they were and how much water they got, um and how they would be compensated. And then um they basically the state of Utah promised them money for an infrastructure project and they were never able to build it and mm-hmm. then the, the as part of this big water project called the central Utah project um, and so they haven't they still legally haven't been figured out and they now have sort of no support and infrastructure to actually build them mm-hmm. and in this whole mm-hmm. kind of idea where there might not be enough water to go around, there are potentially the groups that are going to lose out
3: because mm-hmm.
1: they haven't been able to put them to use. So a lot of the stuff is still, you know, it's been decades of them kind of being disenfranchised Mm -hmm. and trying to backwork it. But it's really hard to backwork into the system.
2: Too bad they can't collect rent.
1: Yeah, yeah. And some of them are trying to kind of figure out, you know, I think in a lot of ways they feel like they've been, you know, screwed over by the system. So they're trying to figure out how they can potentially get what they see as being legally theirs. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. You're listening to Farm to Fork on Valley, Free Radio, WXOJLP, 103.3 FM in Northampton, and we're talking with Heather Hansman, author of Downriver, Into the Future of Water in the West. Uh, So Heather, what impact would you say climate change has had on water levels and consumption in the West?
1: Yeah, climate change. um, So from what I learned, climate change is going to be kind of like the biggest, changing factor in this future. There's a paper that came out while I was working on this. Um, Brad Udall, who's a Colorado State University um, hydrologist, um, and Jonathan Overpack, who's another kind of big water scientist, and they modeled out, you know, there's kind of all these projections for drought and climate change and water resources, and they modeled out um, predicted stream flow and temperature, and by overlaying those two, they basically saw that they thought flows into the river could decrease by up to 50 percent by the oh, end wow. of the century mm-hmm. yeah which is a huge amount especially mm-hmm. when you're thinking about you know already trying to subtract from this water system that doesn't where the math doesn't line up
3: mm-hmm.
1: so that and um you know the colorado river Basin's basically been in drought for the past 20 years
3: mm-hmm.
1: since the beginning of the century to the point where scientists are kind of saying that we shouldn't call it drought anymore we should call it extended aridity, because drought sounds like you can fix it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or that it might change at some point. What did they um, call it? Did you say extended oh, arid- aridity? like oh it's arid, name. yeah. Uh-huh. That's <laughs> yeah, but it is, um, and, you know, reservoir levels have dropped, Lake Powell and Lake Mead are the two big, biggest reservoirs in the water system, and their levels have kind of been, like, consistently dropping, and it's actually the level, the, that drought contingency plan that I measured, or I mentioned earlier, where... You know, states would have to cut back. Mm-hmm. Those are, those cutbacks are triggered by when Lake Mead gets to a certain level.
3: Right.
1: So this, you know, kind of our storage system, which has kind of been the slack in the system, mm-hmm. is starting to shrink, and so people are finally starting to think about changing the system a little bit. But that's because of this, you know, lack of supply.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so you do you do mention um, you know toward the end of the the book that there is water as currency strategies that have been devised um, in the last couple of minutes. Can you just mention how those would work and is that a viable option?
1: Yeah, that's, um, you know, in the way, especially in terms of agriculture, there are groups trying to figure out how to build in flexibility and how to incentivize um, people to use, you know, not use all their rights or use less or find ways to share it. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's several different ways where people are kind of trying to approach that there's water markets where people could potentially trade credits for water, um, or water banks where you could kind of, you know, pay in your water that you're not using to this bank. And then somebody who needs it could take some out. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's not any, there's one, there's a water market in Wyoming that people are trying to figure out. And it's based on, um, the sage grass credit market, which, um, oil and gas companies had to, the sage grass is an endangered bird in Wyoming.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and the oil and gas companies had to, for every well they drilled or every chunk of land they um, dug up, they would have to basically buy a credit mm-hmm. to some other landowner who could you know, provide sage grass habitat. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to build in a water market that's kind of based like that, where users would you know, buy water sources elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But you have to have sort of like a willing seller and a willing buyer trying to figure out those sort of like both sides of that market Mm -hmm. has been kind of one of the, one of the tricks there, Mm -hmm. but there are people trying to figure out those kind of where, how could you encourage, especially agriculture users to, you know, build in, not use all their water in a way that they didn't feel threatened. Mm -hmm. And how could you like say a city like Denver needs water or something like that? How could you create a system where they felt like their water supply was secure, Mm -hmm. even when, you know, the water users maybe only wanted the least water in really wet years. Right, right. So it's tricky because when it's, you know, when in low years, that's when everybody wants it.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Yeah,
0: it's tough. Uh, well, Heather, we have about a minute left. Are there any last uh, tidbits you want to throw out? Maybe where people can find your book? Um, we, didn't we, even, we, didn't, we didn't even get to talk about bugs so people <laughs> yeah, got to go pick know. up the books <laughs> so they can, can read with. about yeah. the bugs and there's we a lot, get the yeah, there's next one too
1: about bugs. there's a lot of stuff about rafting mm-hmm. in the books that I did read um, yeah it's on you can like look at IndieBound which is a good resource for finding your local bookstore or it's on Amazon too mm-hmm. um, or my website which is heatherhansom.com has a list of events and stuff that I'm doing if you want to come chat about it um, and then I think one of the questions I've been getting the most is kind of what people you know, say you live in Massachusetts, kind of what can you do or why should you care mm-hmm. or, you know, why is this important? And I think a lot of it is sort of local education. You know, water issues are different depending on where you live and what's going on. But I think kind of drilling into what's going on, on the ground where you live and figuring out where your water is coming from and sort of like how that might impact you mm-hmm. feels like the most important, kind of like the most tangible thing that people can do.
0: Right, right. Sounds good. Well, we'd like to thank our guest, uh, Heather Hansman, author of Down River, Into the Future of Water in the West. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. This is great.
0: <laughs> you may find additional information about Farm to Fork on Valley Free Radio's website, valleyfreeradio.org. Our theme song was written and performed by Scragly Dan and the Striglers. Mm-hmm.
2: Farm to Fork is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. If you would like to hear past episodes, you can go to farmtofork.podcast.co or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, Stitcher, or any podcast service that you use. Just search for Farm to Fork on WXOJ.